Why don't we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. And we continue in our series of the King and His Kingdom through the Gospel of Matthew. If you'd like to use one of the church Bibles, you'll find our reading on page 811. Uh, while you make your way there, I want to just tell you a little story for your encouragement uh, about something that happened to, to me earlier in the week. Uh, on Tuesday uh, of this past week, Scott Frederick and I made our way over to uh, Church on the Heights. It's a little converged church uh, in Cleveland Heights with Pastor Kevin McIntyre. They're doing great work in the city. Uh, it's a church that we have supported financially here, uh, and we're glad to do so because of their partnership in the gospel. Uh, they had a little seminar on Tuesday about faith and sexuality. And the topic of the, the seminar was how, as Christians, can we learn to love uh, the LGBTQ community well without compromising biblical truth? And um, lots of really, really good material from the seminar. Uh, we commend Preston Sprinkle, who is the name of the, the speaker, to you. He's written a book called People to be Loved, which I'm told is, is just really worth your time and energy to read through if you're wrestling with these issues. Um, but one of the, the main takeaways for us, when it was said, I looked over at Scott like, did you hear that, um, was Preston was talking about this idea of if I'm going to write a book about this issue, in order to establish some credibility, I, I'd better know some people who are gay. And so he started befriending people who were gay and talking to them about the gospel and, and sort of some of the offenses that the, the church has committed against uh, that community by not loving well, by having a poor tone and things like that. And he was talking to this young gay man, probably about 22, 23 years old, and he said to him, you know, do you ever go to church at all? And the young man said, yeah, I go to church from time to time. And uh, so Preston said, well, you, you undoubtedly go to an affirming church, you know, a church that uh, openly affirms uh, the LGBTQ uh, community. And, and so the, the young man responded by saying, well, no, why would I do that? And that's strange, isn't it? So Preston said, well, what do you mean, why would you do that? And the young man said, if I'm going to get up early in the morning and go to church, I'm going to go to a place where they're going to teach me the Bible. How about that? He said, I'm affirmed everywhere I go, every day of the week, and I know that my life's a mess, and I don't want anybody to lie to me on Sunday morning. I want someone to just tell me the truth. So if you're wondering why sort of Sunday by Sunday we consistently just open the Bible and read it and say what it means and try to apply what it, what it means to our lives today, it's, it's for that reason. Not only because Paul commands Timothy preach the Word, but because people are longing for truth in a culture and in a society where truth is hard to find. And so again this morning, we open up to Matthew chapter 6, we read the next text, and we keep pressing on. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. As we turn there, we turn to the words of Jesus, our Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount, and He, write, or he says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
you cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the opportunity again to come uh, before You and Your Word and to hear uh, from You. We pray that as we look to the Scriptures that Your Holy Spirit would come and teach us, that He would open our eyes and our hearts to receive Your Word and to make us more like Your Son. Lord, we want to be freed from the love of money so that we might love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we need Your help for this. And we pray all that we have in Christ's name. Amen. I have become absolutely convinced that Netflix is trying to send us a message. And that message might not be what you think it is. Because whether it's through their documentary Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, which features a group of young, trendy guys who have uh, jettisoned their long hours at work and their desire to accumulate stuff to live a simple life of freedom, or tidying up with Marie Kondo, who encourages her clients to get rid of objects that don't spark joy, all with absolute charm. Uh, the streaming service is trying to tell us that less is more. And whether we agree with the content of these documents, there's a lot to critique. We as Christians know that freedom isn't found by selling our possessions per se. Freedom is found in a relationship with Christ. We know joy isn't found by the things that we possess, but joy is to be found ultimately in the person of Jesus. We know these things to be true as Christians. But nevertheless, these documentaries have put their finger on something that is irrefutable. And that is that maybe, just maybe, possibly, we in America have an unhealthy relationship with money and possessions. Do you think that might be true in our culture? A culture which prizes consumerism and materialism? A culture in which we work longer hours not to provide what's necessary, but to provide for our family's luxury items. We'll sacrifice time with our family in order to accumulate things. There's an issue here that needs to be addressed. And the question that we want to ask this morning is, does Jesus address this issue? 
Do we need to look to those who would minimize or tidy up, or can we look to our Lord for clear, plain, biblical sanity on our relationship to money and possessions? Has Jesus got anything to say about this issue? Well, it turns out, as we turn in the New Testament, that Jesus has quite a lot to say about money and possessions. And particularly in the the passage that we're in this morning, Jesus is confronting us, challenging us, with a series of very penetrating questions. They seem innocent enough on the surface, but when we really begin to allow them to penetrate our hearts, we realize that what Jesus is getting at is the object of our worship. He asks us where our treasure is. What kind of eyes do we have? Who is our master? Why do we worry? And all of this sort of is revolving around the issue of the object of our worship. God or money. And in the text, Jesus commands of you and of me, if we've trusted in Him for salvation, a singular devotion to seek God's kingdom and righteousness as the antidote to anxiety about money and possessions. I mean, it seems to me that whether you have a little or a lot, most of us are anxious about possessions. If we don't have much, we're anxious about accumulating more. And if we have a lot, we're anxious about protecting what we've accumulated. We're, we're a ball of anxiety about money and possessions. Is there an antidote? Well, for the believer in Jesus, there is, and that is to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness. Now, Jesus explores this idea along two lines in our text. He tells us first, He commands a singular devotion in verses 19 to 24, and then in verses 25 to 34, a singular trust. Devotion and trust. Worship, if you will, and trust. This is the antidote to anxiety. I want to just dive right in and look at Jesus' command for us to have a singular devotion that is to Christ and to His kingdom. Look at verse 19 onwards through 24. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 19. He says you have to have an eye that's healthy. Verse 22. And that we can only serve one rather than two masters. Verse 24. Now, it should come as no surprise that what Jesus is commanding of every one of His disciples is that you would be single. As Jesus commands singleness. You can quote me on that, even if you're married. Because he's not talking about singleness of marital status. He's talking about singleness of devotion. All of the metaphors that Jesus brings into play here in verses 19 to 24 have to do with being one or single, whole, if you will. Now, Jesus, he demands this of all of his people in all times and in all places. I mean, imagine for a moment just sort of the staggering claims that he's already made in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness comes from a heart desire to obey and not an external sort of you know, charlatan-esque performance, you'll never enter the kingdom. You're not fit. You haven't really trusted Later on, chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect. Not sinless, but whole, single, complete, as your heavenly Father is perfect. No hypocrisy. That's what Jesus is talking about. We don't do this by being sinless. That's impossible. But we do this, according to Jesus, by His grace, by not being hypocrites. 
Now, he's applied this to obeying the law of God. He's applied this to doing acts of religious devotion. And now, he's going to apply this to the way that you and I relate to money. This is touchy. But Jesus is Lord. And he says, first of all, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What are treasures on earth? I think you and I can understand this. Jesus is talking about the things that money can buy. Do not lay up for yourselves on earth treasures in the things that money can buy, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Seems to me that Jesus would not have made a lucrative amount of money as a financial planner. Because if you go to a financial planner, you'll know one of the pieces of advice that you're going to be given is that you should diversify your portfolio. Don't invest in a bunch of, or in one place, invest in a bunch of places. But Jesus says you can only have one treasure and it had better be in heaven. There's only one place worthy of our investment and that's heaven. Don't lay up treasures on earth, lay up treasures in heaven. Why? Well, first of all, he appeals to our heads. And he says to lay up treasures on earth doesn't even make sense. It's a fool's errand. Why? Because here on earth, moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. It doesn't even make sense to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. It's as true today as it was yesterday. And if you think about it for just one moment, today's top-of-the-line uh, top television is tomorrow's bargain bin doorbuster. And in 10 years from now, it'll be a front lawn special. Eventually, it will corrode and not work at all. That is, of course, if resolution doesn't surpass 4K in the next year or two and render your television obsolete. Accounts can be drained with a few deft clicks of a mouse. Possessions on earth are fleeting. If someone says, well, you know, I, I take very good care of my stuff. I've never been burglarized. I've never had anything taken from me. Well, imagine this. Have you ever seen someone look squarely into the eyes of death, come face to face with death, and like a child preparing for a play date, say, should I bring something? No, you shouldn't, because you can't. Treasures on earth are fleeting. But that's not even the most important thing. Jesus not only appeals to our minds, he appeals to our hearts. He says, there in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what Jesus is after in the Sermon on the Mount, is your heart. And what he's saying here is that you can tell a lot about where your treasure is, what you ultimately value by just examining your heart. The thing that preoccupies your time, your energy, your devotion. See, let's just clarify something. Jesus is not against possessions. There's sort of a surface reading, level reading in this passage that kind of perpetuates that misquotation of the Bible that money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that. What the Bible does say is that the love of money that's a very different thing. The love of money is a root, not the root, a root of all kinds of evil. Jesus isn't against earning power or hard work or personal possessions. What he's against is when those things become our treasure. Because when that's our treasure, our heart follows. What Jesus is saying is if 
things on earth are your treasure, you will tire yourself out in the pursuit of those things. As I was with a friend earlier this week, we were talking in casual conversation, and the CEO of Amazon.com came up in conversation. Do you think he's wealthy? Do you know how much money, according to the Atlantic, he would have to spend daily, daily, to break even? This is if he wants to not earn money. He has to spend $28 million a day. A day! Now, I'm not begrudging him his wealth or his ingenuity or his entrepreneurship. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not begrudging any of that. What I'm sad about, what I lament about, is how often, even in my own heart and in the hearts of other Christians, when sort of that accumulation of stuff becomes the goal. When we begin to think that the sanctified life is to look like Jeff rather than to look like Jesus, that's a problem. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Things like prayers for God's kingdom to come, the willingness to share the goodness of God in Christ with our neighbors, the desire to be more holy as God Himself is holy. That's what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. To give our resources to the alleviation of hunger and starvation and people with a lack of clothing, all of those things. That's what it means to lay up treasures in heaven. It's to serve God in His kingdom. Jesus says that's the only wise investment. He's getting at our heart motives. Contrary to the advice that some advisors would give us to um, diversify our portfolios, Andrew Carnegie was once quoted as saying, you should put all of your eggs in one basket and then watch the basket. And that's what Jesus is teaching as well. Put all of your eggs into the kingdom of heaven. Lay up all of your treasure in heaven. And then keep your eye on heaven. And what you're going to find is that your heart will follow. You'll desire not the here and now, but the there and then. A heart devotion that is pure and undefiled that's brought about by investing in the right things. One treasure, Jesus says, and He also says one eye, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. All that means is that our eyes guide and direct our steps. Our eyes illuminate our path. So, he says, if your eye is healthy. That literally means single. If you grew up on a King James Version, you'll know. Single. Someone says, whoa, that bit about tearing out my right eye back in five, I I thought that was, I didn't think that was literal. Of course it's not literal. But what Jesus is talking about here is having a singular focus being oriented in one place. We understand this idea of single eye very clearly. Watch the ball. Eyes on the ball. Keep your eyes on the ball, we tell to our, uh, our children. It was a soccer game for the first time for Henry yesterday. Heard that expression over and over again. Eyes on the ball. Why? Because if you don't watch the ball, you're probably going to step on it and fall down. It happens a lot of times. Eyes on the ball. Eyes on the prize, we tell one another when we're Pursuing some sort of goal. Why? Because distraction means destruction. It's disaster. Watch the road. We tell our children when they're learning to drive. Why? Because a text message now means a large insurance bill later. But more to the point is the expression, I only have eyes for you. That's what Jesus is getting at. I only have eyes for you. Because the opposite of having a single eye, verse 23, is A bad eye, the evil eye, the stink eye. What does that mean? It means to have an eye filled with greed, as Matthew uses it later. 
It's like when we say the used car salesman uh, saw dollar signs when the vulnerable couple wandered onto the lot. Greedy eyes. Evil eyes. What Jesus is saying is if our eyes are focused on the Lord, if we only have eyes for Him, our whole life will be oriented towards Him. Our life will be filled with light. But if dollar signs smudge up our glasses and prevent us from being able to see Him and His kingdom and His glory correctly, well, Jesus says our life will be filled with darkness. We'll wander away from the Lord. You can only have one eye. You can only have one focus. So we're talking about worship, desire, drive of our hearts. And if that's not abundantly clear already, Jesus makes it perfectly clear in verse 24. Because here comes the the least veiled image that He gives. Look at what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the word that is translated master here is kurios. It's Lord. And what Jesus is saying is that you can only have one Lord. Everybody in this room has a Lord. Whether you believe it or not. Your Lord might be yourself, but you have a Lord. And what Jesus is getting at is what Dylan said perfectly back when he was still writing music. You've got to serve somebody. This is Jesus, who is the true and better Joshua, standing before the people of God, issuing the great choose this day whom you will serve that our generation needs to hear. It's not Baal worship that we're in danger of. It's money worship. Choose this day whom you will serve, Jesus says. God or money? Who are you going to worship? On the one hand, you have God, the loving Heavenly Father, who sent His Son Jesus to save you from your sins, to give you freedom. The kingdom of heaven, which Jesus describes later in chapter 13 as something so worthy of our all, that when a man finds the kingdom of heaven in a field, he goes and sells everything with joy to have that field. We have God on the one hand, His kingdom, His righteousness, and on the other, we have money. Now here's the danger of money, and some of you know this. You live here. Is that if I or you, if we, if we serve money, we'll never have what we're after. Money and possessions is the worst, it is the, the most tyrannical God known to man. Because you can never have enough. How much money does it take to actually be satisfied? You say a million. We'll talk to a millionaire. How much money does it actually take to be satisfied? Maybe a billion. Talk to a billionaire. Who is satisfied with possessions? No one. Because as a God, they demand more and more of your time and your attention and your drive and your devotion to the point where you're never ultimately satisfied. You live life on a conveyor belt. You know this. You cannot serve God in money. So you've got to pick who you're going to serve. God says, Jesus says, you can serve a God who loved you and served you in the sending of His Son. You can serve a God that demands all of you and gives nothing in return. We can only have one treasure, one eye, and one master. It's a singular devotion. Now someone says, wow, that's, so far this has been very theoretical, very conceptual, a little heady for me. I get we're talking about worshiping either God or money. 
how do I know? How do I know whether I'm worshiping money to the exclusion of God? How do I know if I've made money my Savior rather than Christ? Fortunately, Jesus goes right there. And he commands not only a singular devotion, but a singular trust. Now, here's the connection. Whatever you are ultimately devoted to, whatever you are ultimately worshiping, becomes, whether you realize it or not, the object of your trust. So that if I worship and I'm continuing to serve the God of money, I will trust in the God of money to give me what I need in life. So where does this apply? I mean, in the nitty-gritty, where does this really apply? Well, you're going to see that Jesus goes someplace where I don't think many of us would have anticipated. Because plainly said, this applies when the cupboard's looking a little bare. This applies when your child has outgrown all of her former clothes. You've got to buy a whole new wardrobe. This applies most directly, according to Jesus, not to the luxury items that our minds were sort of focused on in the first half of the text, but to items of necessity. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. Therefore, don't miss that. Therefore, for this reason, that word connects what follows to what we've just talked about like superglue. They go hand in hand. Therefore, because you can only have one treasure, because you can only have one eye, because you can only serve one master, for this reason, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Food, drink, and clothing. When we drive by the, the mall over in um, Hermitage all the time. It's a, it's a it's dead man's land. It's, a, it's, it's, it's empty. You, Henry asked, what, what's that? I said, oh, that's a, an abandoned temple. That's an abandoned place of worship, of, of food and clothing. Jesus gets down to the nitty-gritty of what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear. He says, do not be anxious about these things, but seek first, verse 33, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is a telltale sign that I worship my possessions? Being stirred up, worried, anxious. Where am I going to get my next meal? What, 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 what am I going to wear? That, that's proof positive that our portfolios are all wrong. Our hearts aren't fit. Because we're trusting, again, in our ability to provide those things on our own by what we earn. What Jesus does here is brilliant because He reorients our trust. He directs us to the only one worthy of our trust. What is the antidote to anxiety? Trust. There's an old Mad TV skit, some of you will have seen it, with Bob Newhart, and uh, he's playing a, a, a psychotherapist, and a woman walks in, and she's got this irrational fear, we might call it an anxiety, uh, of being buried alive uh, in a box. And so Newhart has her come in, and he says to her, you know, I only charge $5 for the first five minutes. I don't make change. We don't bill insurance. I can guarantee you uh, after the first five minutes we'll be done here. So she comes in and she says, oh, that's great. She starts to pour out her soul that, you know, I'm afraid of being buried alive in a box. And he goes, okay, 
uh, let's go. Here, here we go. Here's the, here's the counsel. Uh, she says, should I take out a pen? He goes, that's ah, only two words. Most people don't have any problem remembering it. And uh, so she goes, okay. She's ready. And he leans in, and he looks her right in the eyes, and he says, stop it. <laughs> leans back, looks at his clock, and goes, that would be $2. <laughs> stop it, right? And the, the punchline is, it's never that simple. Like, you can't just stop being afraid of what you're afraid of. You can't just stop being anxious about what you're anxious about. So Jesus doesn't just say, stop it. See, here's, a, again, just as an aside, the folly of just giving you, you know, bare morality. Do this, do this, don't do this. It doesn't work. Until our hearts change, it doesn't work. So Jesus doesn't just say, stop it. He says, look around. It's a great text for us in the spring. He says, learn from the birds and learn from the lilies. While you're at it, learn from today and tomorrow. First, learn from the birds. Look at what Jesus says. Look at the birds of the air. Bird watching is biblical. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Now the point isn't, we should be like birds and stop working. Working's not bad. Worrying's bad. The point of Jesus is, if you look at the birds, have you ever seen a bird suffer for lack of food? I mean, maybe occasionally, but generally in the course of life, do you see that? No. Do birds know anything about toiling? No. Do birds know anything about finances? No. Do birds know anything about 401ks? No. Do birds go to restaurants? No. But your heavenly Father feeds them. There's the gospel. Your heavenly Father. If you believe in Jesus, you relate to the Lord in a relationship of trust and faith, God is your heavenly Father. Are you not, Jesus says, more valuable than the birds? Of course you are. So if you can trust the Lord with something as severe, as, as serious as your soul, I'm going to stake my entire soul on the person of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you can trust Him with your soul, what makes you think you can't trust Him with your stomach? What are you worried about? That's the rationale of Jesus. You already know He's trustworthy. Keep trusting Him. In my Bible reading this, this past week, you'll be happy to know I do read the Bible for myself. Uh, Psalm 37 came across in the McShane reading plan where David is writing, and he says, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. If you can trust him with your soul, you can trust him with your stomach. Well, what about food? From the birds to the lilies of the field. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Matthew loves that phrase, always rhetorical, always to the disciples, always when their lives don't match the profession of their faith. You little faith, you of little faith, don't you, don't you understand this? As they're standing there and they're listening, they're, 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 these people who are, are rich in Old Testament understanding, they're, they're thinking about Solomon. You can't out-wealth Solomon. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but in 2 Kings 13, there's a, an extended passage about, or, or 10 rather, the wealth of Solomon. And we're told that the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. That's a lot. We're told about the throne that he builds. It has six steps and a round top, and on each side there's armrests with lions and lions coming up the steps. And 
the writer has to pause and say, the like of it was never made in any kingdom. There's never been a king quite like this. Then there's this little comment as as we continue to hear about Solomon's wealth, that all of his drinking vessels, his houseware was made of gold. None were of silver. Why? Because silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. It's like, oh, you've got silver? Were you poor? Right? Like that, that was the wealth of Solomon's kingdom. And Jesus is saying, look at the, look at the lilies of the field. They're, they're decked out more than Solomon ever was. They look better than the models in all of the Banana Republic uh, catalogs you can look at. They're well clothed. And do they toil? No. Do they spin? No. Do they purchase clothing? Do they make? No. We don't live in a closed universe in which God isn't active. God takes care of His creation. And so, if you can trust Him with your soul, you trust Him with your stomach, He's worthy of your trust when it comes to the clothes on your back. What are you worried about, Jesus says? God be praised. He, he can be trusted. One from tomorrow. There in verse 24, 34 rather. Jesus is a realist. He doesn't give it to us in a shallow way. He gives it to us straight. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. He says, listen, you're worried about tomorrow. Let me tell you, there's plenty to worry about today. You, can't, you haven't even gotten through today yet. What are you worried about tomorrow for? That's real. Life's hard. Worry's not the answer. On the one hand, we have worry, right? So Jesus says, Verse 31, do not be anxious, that's worry, asking these questions, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek, that's an important word, the Gentiles seek after all these things. So the expression of their anxiety is they've got to scurry about, we've got to get our next meal, we've got to find clothing, what are we going to drink? It's, it's never-ending anxiety. The Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father is worthy of trust, knows that you need them all. Verse 33, but seek. Oh, so there is something I should be worried about. There is something I should devote myself to that I should be preeminently concerned with. Yes. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. John Stott in brilliant simplicity, says that God's kingdom is Christ ruling over His people in total blessing and total demand. What am I supposed to be worried about if I'm a disciple of Jesus? What is my primary concern? It is Christ ruling over me in total blessing and total demand. So the right question isn't what should I eat? I can trust Him for that. So the right question rather is, how can I mediate the blessing of Jesus to the people in the cubicle next to me while I'm here at work? The question isn't what should I drink, it's how can I pray for the coming of the kingdom in the lives of my neighbors right now? The question isn't what shall I wear, the question is what sins may I repent of right now in order to live in conformity with the righteousness of Christ? That's the primary concern. That's the worry. Jesus doesn't say don't worry about anything. He says worry about the only thing. 
And in evaluating the way that we live our lives, those things that we devote most of our time, our energy, our thoughts, our prayers to, we know. We know plain as day whether we're worshiping God on the one hand or money on the next. It's a matter of heart. And the only way that our hearts change is by looking to Jesus as as the one who finally fulfills all those sinful, uh, all those desires that we try to fill up in, in sinful ways. See, the minimalists will tell you they found freedom by getting rid of their things. No, they haven't. They found freedom from accumulating things. They have not found freedom from trying to avoid the accumulation of things. They're still worshiping possessions just in a different way. Those who tidy up would tell you they've, sought, they've found joy in their possessions. They haven't found joy in their possessions. They found a temporary happiness that'll expire the very next time they tidy up. So where is freedom and joy ultimately to be found? It's to be found in Christ. He is the solution to the desires of our hearts. This is an issue of worship. In the first place, in the final analysis, this is an issue of worship. I don't think it's unfair to say that we as Americans and American Christians have an unhealthy relationship to money and possessions. You know it as well as I do. Guilty as charged. But what I need to do, time in and time out, is to come again to the foot of the cross and to see the freedom that Jesus will offer me if I'll trust in Him for the forgiveness of my sins and to see the joy that exists in the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that's worth selling everything, everything to obtain. So where's your heart? Where's your heart? Loved ones, quit. Quit trying to correct this issue based on the way that those in the world will tell you it's solved. This issue is solved not by getting rid of something. It's solved by gaining someone. And that someone, you got it, is Christ. Don't you love how the Sunday school answer really is the best answer nearly every time? Jesus. How do I solve anxiety? Jesus. How do I solve my idolatry? Jesus. It's all Jesus. He's the king who reigns with all authority over the kingdom of heaven, consisting of disciples from all nations who obey all that he has commanded, worshiping him rather than things. Grace upon grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we we confess, I confess, just how easily we fall foul. So often we think we own our stuff, but our stuff owns us. Sometimes we think that the things that we've purchased are going to be used for our service, but in actual fact, we end up serving them. Constantly involved in the rat race of more money, bigger house, better car, when all that we actually need and all that we actually want deep down is to be found in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us even this very moment to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, we've trusted you with our souls. We can trust you then with our stomachs and our bodies. 
Help us to pursue advancing in holiness and spreading the good news of Christ to those around us. And we'll just leave the rest to you. Lord, we pray all that we have in Jesus' name. Amen.